0: The first wave sent many individuals, hundreds of millions in fact, to be locked out of their homes and their businesses literally within a couple of hours notice.
1: What's it been like on the front line of the COVID pandemic in India, where many vital public services are provided by local grassroots organisations.
2: Everything shut down without warning over two days. Suddenly, all COVID-related health services, everything went online. India sort of turned to being a digitally enabled economy almost overnight. That was hugely challenging.
1: On this week's Radio Davos, we hear from the social entrepreneurs whose work in areas such as health and education has been turned upside down by COVID, but who have risen to the challenge.
3: A lot of these poor people, slum dwellers, daily wages, they're not able to afford masks and sanitizers, and those were the needs of the hour.
1: Radio Davos is the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might fix them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook.
0: Group saying even without money, I will do whatever it takes to help the communities I serve, and and really just seeing a level of empowerment which we've never seen before.
1: I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, and with a look at India's
0: COVID first
1: responders...
0: And no one's really been looking at at how do we support them uh, as they support others.
1: This is Radio Davos. India has been one of the country's hardest hit by COVID-19, not just for the health consequences. With almost half a million killed by the virus, it ranks third in the world for COVID deaths behind the USA and Brazil, and it's also been really hit economically. In April 2020, the World Economic Forum launched the COVID Response Alliance for Social Entrepreneurs to mobilise support for grassroots organisations around the world that are helping local communities survive. To pay tribute to those groups and to drum up wider support, the COVID Response Alliance for Social Entrepreneurs has just published a list of 50 of those groups doing vital work in India. And in this episode of Radio Davos, we'll take you to India to hear from a handful of them, providing everything from food aid, medical care, vaccines, and also looking out for the often neglected needs of women and children. First, I spoke to Caroline de Brun, head of the COVID Response Alliance for Social Entrepreneurs, and I asked her, what exactly is a social entrepreneur?
4: How I'd like to think about, about them is society's change agents, creators of innovations that disrupt the status quo and, to tra- and transform and build a better world. All quite lofty words, but usually these organizations are led by entrepreneurial founders, oftentimes have innovative programs, products and services in place that address unmet social or environmental needs of communities and, and, and the markets that they serve. And they take advantage of market dynamics. So even though they are impact focused, they are oftentimes still generating some type of revenue in some shape or form. Uh, So that can be financial services or some of the work that we've seen in microfinance, for example, those are the typical things that you see entrepreneurs take on. And I guess finally, oftentimes these entrepreneurs are challenging conventional thinking and the systems and market models that be.
1: Some people have some notion of what aid is, development aid or emergency aid. Is that part of social entrepreneurs' work or is that quite a different thing?
4: The work that these entrepreneurs are doing is oftentimes addressing the same needs, sometimes for immediate relief, especially in times of COVID, of course, but also just in general in our societies, poverty, inequality, a lack of education, etc. But they're going at it quite in quite different ways. And those two worlds are usually not connected or integrated as much so you see these usual more traditional models and delivery systems operating and being rolled out and alongside there's oftentimes these smaller increasingly scaling organizations that are also doing their work and yet it's it's like water and oil sometimes it's not quite you know taking advantage of the unique assets and capabilities that each of these systems have. And I think really also what COVID showed is that we need both worlds and, and kind of the integration of that to be able to respond as quickly and as uh, inclusively, if you will, to the to to the needs that we're uh, seeing emerge due to the pandemic.
1: Well, we'll be hearing on this episode from some social entrepreneurs who are dealing with the COVID emergency. But I'm just wondering, what help do social entrepreneurs need and what do they get from an alliance for social entrepreneurs?
4: When the, the crisis came up, that was one of the things we tried to figure out. Many of them were kind of doing their, their work. Our members were already supporting them. But we didn't know, we had a feeling that many of them were in immediate kind of need or even at risk of, of, of falling over themselves, but we just didn't know. What we found is that really they need a mix of financial and non-financial support. So they needed money to just cash flow if their businesses were, business models were, or, or revenue the drivers were put on hold. They needed non-financial support which included things like strategic support financial planning as they were really being challenged in how they were managing their cash flows sometimes even an extra pair of hands to be able to do the the types of activities that they were adding to their work and what i mean with that is for example there were education focused entrepreneurs that became providers of food and basic health services or clothing manufacturers that became manufacturers of masks so all of that required an immediate pivot and, and these entrepreneurs were while in the trenches also really being posed some quite fundamental questions related to their own businesses. And, and really kind of what came through maybe more than anything else is, is these people just being, having worked so hard. It's not very glorious kind of, you know, work that they're doing. It's, it's, it's really hard work in the trenches. And, and so what we got back from them is real appreciation, I guess, for the energy boost and the recognition that we're able to provide. Them, but also their teams who had been kind of pushing through, and many of them had been affected not just professionally, obviously, but also in their own homes. People had they had all lost people, they were all taking care of their family members who were sick while also trying to be the responders that we needed them to be. And so, one entrepreneur said it was working in particular rural areas. That this is such a huge gesture because they are so remote that they often feel that that what they were doing was not making sense to people, and that the recognition that that they're getting now through the forum and through our alliance, and many of whom are are leading actors in the social enterprise field, is really an acknowledgement of their work, and maybe also then just you know a boost for them to keep going as their work is is, is far from over.
1: So let's hear from a social entrepreneur. This is Rahika Batra, who runs an organisation called Every Infant Matters, which usually focuses on improving the health of hungry children. When COVID hit, suddenly its priorities had to change.
3: Since March of 2020, we've largely been focused on COVID relief. You know, as the cases were increasing and uh, everybody around was advised to wear a mask. And I just noticed that a lot of these... uh, poor people, and the the slum dwellers, the the daily wages, they are not able to afford masks and sanitizers and those were the needs of the hour. So we started off by distributing these items in the slums, we started off by giving hand washes and soaps in the slums and that was was just a very small project that we did. I think we covered around five, six hundred people in the slums of New Delhi. Now uh, 21st of March I think was the date when the country was put under the strictest lockdown in history. They just shut down all the operations and they just said, you know, life as you know it has to come to a standstill. So, the next urgent need was that of food because the daily wagers and those who were working at construction sites, who were working in offices or in factories, they were stuck with no food to eat. So, then we started off by giving uh, ration bags, groceries. We made a COVID care kit of 20 kgs of rice, 20 kgs of wheat flour, then four types of pulses, soap, sanitizer, four masks. We made a whole kit like that, which would sustain a family for about a month. Being a doctor on the front line, I just noticed that my whole fraternity was burdened under the the whole the pandemic and not having adequate personal equipment protective equipment was the next crisis so then we started distributing PPE to frontline workers.
1: The impact of Covid on frontline responders was not just that it changed what services they needed to provide the virus also hit the providers themselves as they had to cope with illness in their own families or like Radhika Batra caught it themselves.
3: Now the second wave was a hold whole new problem altogether. It was the cases just, they just went up exponentially. We could not control the numbers at all. And there was a humanitarian crisis in the country. The crisis was so bad that there were no hospital beds available. There were no medicines available. There was no oxygen to be found. The hospitals were running out of oxygen. The situation was that bad. And that was the time when my whole family also got affected. So uh, I could not contribute in the hospital at the time. I myself got COVID and I was sitting at home and I just saw everybody around scrambling for resources. I myself had to scramble for resources. For my grandparents, we needed an ICU bed, we needed remdesivir, we needed a lot of things which, we, which were nowhere to be found. So I set up this entity called the COVID Task Force under Every Infant Matters and we had uh, 165 volunteers working around the clock to connect people in need to the resources that are available and to, to save precious time, you know, we we didn't want them scrambling around to find oxygen cylinders or to find, um, you know, these drugs. They were not just people from the disadvantaged sectors, even well-off people from uh, the really elite communities could not find, could not get help in, in this humanitarian crisis. So we were getting calls from everywhere, the entire country.
1: During that wave of the pandemic in India, people were scrabbling to find oxygen cylinders and other essentials to keep their loved ones alive. The Every Infant Matters volunteers were helping verify oxygen vendors and letting people know where to find those precious supplies
3: as volunteers we were picking off these leads off the internet there were a lot of people posting online we were verifying them constantly in real time and then updating the patient's families with these with this information that you know okay this place 50 miles from here has a sure shot cylinder that you can get if you reach within half an hour there was a pregnant lady who was on the ventilator and both her baby's life and her life was at stake because the oxygen in that hospital ran out So we got an urgent SOS call that, you know, we need an oxygen tank to sustain this ventilator, otherwise both the baby and the mother are going to die. And within, I think, uh, one and a half hours, we were able to get them an oxygen tank and uh, thankfully they both survived course, you know, the requests have come down drastically,
1: but it's still going on. Radhika Batra of Every Infant Matters in Delhi, one of the 50 organisations highlighted in the World Economic Forum report on India's COVID-19 responders. Another one in that report is Arman, which works with government agencies and other NGOs to increase access to healthcare for pregnant women and mothers, a task suddenly made much harder when COVID hit. Here's Arman's founder, Aparna Hegda, explaining how a new virtual clinic has helped pregnant women unable to access hospitals overrun by COVID and how it has trained healthcare workers on coping with the risks of the virus during pregnancy.
5: When COVID struck what happened is that hospitals closed down or became COVID centres. Healthcare professionals got involved in COVID care. Overnight we created a virtual clinic. Virtual clinic for antenatal and paediatric care. Antenatal care in the morning and paediatric care in the afternoon and women could call in from anywhere in the country. 15,600 women have availed of these services of a virtual clinic and women would call in with medical emergencies. Oftentimes you know if they're bleeding, okay it's emergency please go to the hospital and then where do you go right? We provide information on that. Or if some home remedies that can be exercised. In second wave, we've added COVID content. We're doing integrated high-risk pregnancy management training. So that we've added COVID content. So how to manage COVID in pregnancy? We actually created protocols and we have training the nurses, medical officers, specialists throughout the state of Telangana. And we're hoping that this spreads to other states.
1: So have women in India been hit harder by COVID than men? Aparna Hegda says yes and gives three reasons.
5: Women have had it harder than men. There's a big uh, gender divide, though now it seems to be kind of closing down. But if you look at even till the July data, around uh, 167 million men have got access to vaccine, but uh, only 143 million women have got access to vaccine because of the fact that, first of all, you look at patriarchy, right? If you look at the fact that woman is second-class citizen, the fact that her health is not so important, her nutrition, her care is not that important. So men get access to vaccine more, you know, from a family and not women. Secondly, women do not have the liberty to be able to go out on their own to access vaccines, you know, they need to be escorted, right, so this whole thing of going to the hospital, taking a vaccine, women have been denied that chance, right, Uh, especially from rural India. Lastly, uh, you know, uh, there's a whole digital illiteracy, right, if you look at the number of women who have got access to phones themselves, only 20% have, you know, women would have access to phones, though there might be a family phone, right, or there's a lot of illiteracy with respect to digital initiatives, right, so, our vaccine, uh, you know, access is only through uh, a mobile phone, right? So if you want to register, you want to get a date, you have to go through the mobile phone. You have to go through an app. It's not even a feature phone. We're talking about rural India, right? Where, you know, most women would have access to a feature phone, not a smartphone. So how do they go and input their name in their, you know, app and get a date and go for vaccination, right? So this whole technology divide that's coming in because women do not have access to smartphones as many men do cleared uh, on the whole patriarchy and gendered access to health care.
1: Aparna Hegda of Arman, one of the 50 social enterprises responding to the COVID crisis in India, highlighted in the World Economic Forum's report. We'll hear more from India's COVID frontline after this short break.
0: Sometimes in your career you have these moments where uh, everything changes, so it was uh, one of those uh, life-changing, maybe leadership-changing
1: moments, in time.
2: Svein Torre holsetter is the CEO of Yara, a fertilizer company that started 116 years ago to tackle a famine. Today it's tackling a different crisis and looking to protect the planet. Svein talked to Meet the Leader about how taking urgent action for the environment is steering the company's priorities and how capabilities that it has can help decarbonize the food value chain and even play a special role
6: in the energy transition.
0: With the food sector being uh, 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions, it's important to drive this, to shape this, be proactive rather than reactive. Spain
2: talked to Meet the Leader about how trust will drive the next breakthrough for the climate
3: and how anyone can do their part.
0: We, we don't need any technology breakthroughs. We do need a breakthrough on collaboration, on trust and transparency in order to uh, facilitate it. And we cannot delegate this to someone else to solve for us. We have to do it ourselves.
2: I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Learn all of this and more on the next Meet the Leader.
1: Welcome back to Radio Davos, where we're hearing from social entrepreneurs fighting the impacts of COVID-19 in India. The Antarang Foundation helps young people from socio-economically vulnerable backgrounds make the transition from school to fulfilling work. But as for all the other organizations we've heard from, COVID completely disrupted its work. Its founder and chief executive is Priya Agarwal.
2: India sort of turned to being a digitally enabled economy almost overnight. Everything shut down without warning, you know, over two days. So it gave, it gave nobody any time to prepare. And then suddenly all COVID-related health services, uh, accessing hospitals, accessing even testing, everything went online, right? So that was hugely challenging right at the beginning. After schools have been shut for more than a year now, we've had a huge issue accessing students. All educationists, all schools that serve underserved communities and less privileged young people, youth at risk, young children at risk, um, we've not been able to access our children, right? Even in an urban center like Mumbai, we've barely been able to access 50% of the children. Um, The other 50% have either dropped out of education, in the case of girls, you, ha- you hear an increasing rate of early marriage. In the case of boys, it is, you know, getting into work much earlier on.
1: So how did the Antarang Foundation hope to continue its work with young people in such a state of crisis? First, they had to get in touch with those students and then ensure those students stayed in touch. Priya Agarwal.
3: The first that we
2: did was to make sure that we are connected with all of the students and the families that we serve. The last thing on somebody's mind is to pay for internet data on their phones, right? Even if they do have smartphones, which is about 60% of the population. So the first thing that we actually did was rolled out support for internet data packs. We actually provided internet data packs free of cost for the first six months to a lot of our students and their families, more than 15 to 20,000 of the families over there. Because uh, a lot of small businesses needed workforce to start reopening, but they didn't have the cash flows. What we did roll out was a you know sponsored an intern program where we actually raised funding for small businesses to be able to pay young job seekers and hire them as interns. So that way the young job seekers could get jobs, right, get incomes into families and small businesses to get could get back on their feet and have the workforce that was necessary to to get back one keeping um, high schoolers in education because we're seeing a huge number of dropouts. Right, Last year, the estimate was about 30%. This year, we'll probably add another 25% to the number of high schoolers who are dropping out because they need to start earning for their families. So that's the first big concern. How do we keep kids in education, especially high school age kids who are the most vulnerable in education? The second is, how do we then help, uh, help them safely transition into careers that will help them break the cycle of poverty, right? Because what the pandemic has also done, it's it's sort of pushed so many families into catastrophic poverty. And because they've had to drop out and because their skill sets, again, have taken a backseat, they're once again at risk of getting into sort of jobs that are stereotypical, low wage, and getting stuck there and being unable to get out of it. Right. So how do we get young people to transition safely into meaningful, decent wage employment or small business opportunities? Right. That's the second big challenge and the second big concern. The third is as a result of the first two, how do we make sure that access to mental health services is both easily available right, and accessible uh, to young people, especially at risk?
1: Priya Agarwal, who runs the Antarang Foundation. As I record this, India has given at least a first vaccine dose to just over half of its enormous population. One organisation involved in the vaccination programme is the Karuna Trust, a charitable healthcare provider. Venkat Chekuri explained the challenges of vaccinating the poorest people who have little access to technology.
6: We have administered these vaccines through a centralised COVID app, which also registers the details of, of the people. The, in these areas of our operations, we also have slum dwellers and rural poor who have very poor health-seeking behavior. In such uh, ca- conditions, we go to them and uh, create a create a session for them, and we do vaccinate at their doorstep. And also, we have a health education programs so to give them awareness and remove the vaccine hesitation and then we inoculate them with the covid vaccines and so this is an ongoing program and it's going on and we aim to you know, complete more than 70 percent of the population by December of 2021. There are some hesitancy about vaccines uh, that is due to different reasons so we do a lot of health education and then make them understand the importance of vaccination and do that. Then second is the the reaching out to the health center. they they have to come and when when they come there may not be vaccines available. So the uh, such people who, who have the poor health seeking behavior we go to their doorstep and do the vaccination then another important issue that we are facing is the technology part the all the all the people have to register themselves uh, in a centralized covid app and uh, there is illiteracy among the people in the remote places and the urban slums so there our uh, frontline health workers are helping them in registering this their uh, data into the centralized app. So luckily, because Corona Trust is present in the villages and in the urban areas for more than 25 years, so there is a lot of acceptance and familiarity about Corona Trust services in those areas. So that way, when the pandemic hit the population, then they know that we are there. So that acceptance is a great uh, plus point
1: for us. Venkat Chakuri of the Karuna Trust. To get an idea of the importance of social entrepreneurs and non-governmental organisations in India, I spoke to Davil Sungvi, who a couple of decades ago co-founded Desra, an NGO that aims to help other NGOs. He told me more about its work and how COVID really impacted such organisations in India.
0: Desra itself means enlightened giving in Sanskrit. Uh, and we started 22 years ago with really the goal of being an NGO for NGOs. Uh, we were... Very impressed and still are with so many uh, NGO leaders and community-based organizations that have seen a problem in front of them and have actively tried to solve that problem and realized very quickly that no one was supporting them to become better leaders, to, to assemble management teams around them, to get unrestricted funding, enabling them to grow and scale their programs and impact. And, and so we felt it was a need to sort of be an NGO for NGOs and really help them uh, achieve their aspirations of, of, of scale and thereby helping their, their communities more effectively. So things, again, globally and in India have been really bad. I think in India context, the first wave really sent many individuals, hundreds of millions, in fact, to be locked out of their homes and their businesses literally within a couple of hours notice. And so we all may Remember images of March 2020 of migrant communities walking hundreds of kilometers with children in tow, with really nowhere else to go. Many, many informal workers work within the factories and live there as well. And so when the lockdown was announced, they had no way of getting back. They had no place in the cities that they have effectively played a major role in building and were sort of shunted and and forgotten about. And and so that was a tragedy in itself, but because of lack of jobs and, and economic opportunity in rural India, many of them were, were forced to come back to the cities and... And in that, the second wave hit, which was far more deadlier. The Delta strain has, you know, affected us just like it has affected other countries. The only difference I would say is at the time when the Delta strain started hitting, we had less than 1% of our population fully vaccinated. And so we've had far greater deaths than ever imaginable. For example, in one state, the state of West Bengal, they've done some analysis looking at government records and there have been 11 times more deaths in the period since COVID hit in India, and now in that particular state, compared to uh, a year and a half before that. And so there was 120,000 deaths, as opposed to close to about 10,000 deaths in, in a similar period pre COVID. And so these stats keep coming out. And we're just seeing that the toll that has taken has just been devastating in, in all levels.
1: And so the role of NGOs across all manner of activities has been really important. Could you tell us something about the response to COVID from that sector?
0: Number one, many, in the second wave at least, many NGOs, if not all, were directly impacted by their staff, their team members, their colleagues, all being infected. And so in around April, May time, I don't think there was an organization that we knew of that did not have between 30 to 50 percent of their own team members, either directly in, infected by COVID at the time or somebody in their household, so so that was number one. I, I think number two, these same individuals and organizations were in the community helping out, whether it was to to provide healthcare services, food rations, education. The sector, unfortunately, has not skipped a beat uh, now for eighteen months, and and so they were out there doing whatever it took. Um, Literally risking their lives to do so and, and continue to and, and and so what we realized and, and something again we've seen from day one and really the emphasis of why we started was local leaders that are proximate to the issues at hand that have had lived experiences and what they're trying to solve are the ones that will become the first responders to any sort of crisis. And we saw the same thing happening here, which is where we sort of took the call to to step up to support these organizations and do whatever we could to, to reciprocate for what they were doing for the community. And what we've seen really in these last 18 months is NGOs coming together, being nimble, realizing with one-third the resources, laying off staff, but the staff still working full-time to, to really serve those in need and, and really just seeing a level of empowerment, which we've never seen before, with which is groups saying, even without money, I will do whatever it takes to help the communities I serve. And it's it's been tremendous. At the same time, very, very trying on the community overall overall, since you know, they, they've suffered also with, with their own families, with their own health, with their own financial status, and, and no one's really been looking at, at how do we support them uh, as they support others.
1: What would you say to skeptics who would look at philanthropy and say, they're covering over, you know, these are Band-Aid solutions very often to fundamental problems that shouldn't be solved by this private sector philanthropy.
0: I think we're fortunate in India to see how a social movement could throw an entire government out of power when we gained independence. That was actually supported by a number of philanthropists across the country and across the world. And and so I think for those who are skeptical about Movements, a civil society, and and sort of the impact it makes. I think we we should be reminded of all of the leaders we all love and respect, whether it's Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, and, and so many others who actually were the cause of of movements that have changed the world completely.
1: Davil Sungvi of Desra. To find out more about the organisations featured in this episode of Radio Davos and all the others that appear on the World Economic Forum's top 50 COVID-19 last mile responders, look for the article that accompanies this episode and you can find that on our podcast page, wef.ch slash podcast. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented and edited by me, Robin Pomeroy, with reporting by Katrina Gordichuk and Emmanuel Orsini. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.